1: Recorded Sunday, January 8, 2006, during the Society's 35th Critical Care Congress here in San Francisco, California. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we will be speaking with Timothy Quill, MD, one of seven prominent critical care leaders presenting during the plenary sessions at Congress. Dr. Quill is a professor of medicine, psychiatry, and medical humanities, as well as the director of the Center for Palliative Care and Clinical Ethics at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. His session at Congress is entitled, The Terry Schiavo Case, Anomaly or Harbinger? Over the course of many years, Dr. Quill has written numerous articles on decision making at the end of life and specifically has contributed an important article to the April 21, 2005 edition of the New England Journal of Medicine on this case, entitled Terry Schiavo, A Tragedy Compounded. Though extreme cases such as these are rare, the importance and relevance to the practicing clinician cannot be overemphasized. We have an opportunity to speak with a true thought leader in this field today during what I'm sure will be a fascinating and thought-provoking interview. Thank you, Timothy, for joining us today.
2: Glad to be here.
1: I would like to start out by learning a little bit more about you. I understand you're at the University of Rochester now, focusing on palliative care, but why don't you share with the members of SCCM, if you could, how you initially became involved in that field and how has your uh, research and interest in that field developed over the years?
2: Well, I trained as a, a general internist and uh uh did what might be considered a mix of hospitalism and primary care for uh, uh the first part of my uh career. but I had always had an interest in end of life care, probably stemming from my work as a uh, medical student and resident when uh uh we had such severely ill patients often in the intensive care unit, and uh were always trying to struggle with uh, whether we were doing the right thing, uh, continuing with technology, or, or having a broader discussion about what is going on. I'm a real lover of, of technology, the intensive care unit. We work uh, a lot in our, with our palliative care group in the intensive care unit now. Uh, but also, I, I understand it has its limitations, and, and uh, to try to help people use it when it's helpful, but also stop using it if it isn't uh, helpful has been one of the things that I've been very interested in throughout my career.
1: Uh, and again, understanding the transition, when is it time to transition to a more of a palliative focus?
2: Yeah, it's partly that. It's partly a both-and approach at first, I think. It's it's saying that uh, certainly while somebody's going through a very uh, uncertain period, they might survive, they might uh, recover. We certainly want to be very aggressive with managing their pain and symptoms, but also we need to prepare them uh, in case things don't go well. Uh, and so I, I think uh, sort of working in partnership with the critical care physicians uh, and palliative care doctors now is, a, is, I think, a real model that has a lot of promise uh, for critical care in general. I think it's probably the, be- the way the best care ought to be.
1: And this issue of of end-of-life and the interface between that and critical care is complex, right? Because a lot of people die in the ICU. A lot of people feel that you shouldn't die without having been in an ICU. And I guess this is one of your areas of focus. Can you die without having been through a a critical uh, intervention first?
2: Yeah, I think, I think uh, in the modern world, particularly in this country, people really want to take advantage of medical technology if it has something to offer them. So I think many people will continue to die having made a trip to the intensive care unit or two, you know, in the latter parts of their lives. But as the prognosis starts to get uh, poorer and poorer and the odds of benefiting get longer and longer, I think that's when we really need to have a broader discussion with patients and families to try to just to help them understand what they're getting and what they're not getting in this process.
1: And you focus a lot on um, on palliative care and, and potentially hospice, is that correct?
2: Yeah, uh, hospice would be distinct from palliative care in the sense uh, they're very similar in the sense that they focus on aggressive management of symptoms, uh, enhancing quality of life, uh, probably enhancing decision-making with patients and families. But uh, Hospice is a subset of palliative care where people have really made a decision that uh, they no longer want aggressive disease-driven therapy. It's actually a fairly small subgroup of the people that we see because most people want to take advantage of technology if it can help them. At the same time, uh, as they get sicker and sicker, they really need to know that they're not likely to survive and may need to do some of the preparation that's like what they do in hospice, but they don't have to be in a hospice program to do it.
1: And uh, at the University of Rochester, what are some of your other areas of focus? I know when I was a fellow, they had a special palliative care unit and things like that. Can you talk to us about that a little bit?
2: Yeah, we have a growing palliative care program. It's about four years old. We we started fairly rapidly, you know, from getting about in our first year of operation, getting about 300 consults uh, a year. Now we got about 600 consults a year. We would, uh, when we first started in the intensive in the intensive care unit, we would only be involved after somebody had been in there two or three weeks, and you know things weren't going well, that uh, people were in conflict about what to do, and now we've developed a whole screening process where we try to identify people early on who who are at high risk of dying in the intensive care unit, and we think about getting us involved within in day one or two instead of week two or three, and it's made a huge difference. Uh, in terms of helping families make better decisions, get more informed. It's it's sort of an added bonus to help families kind of think through these processes from the beginning.
1: So you'll actually be surveying patients in the ICU to see if they may be an appropriate uh, candidate for your group to be evaluating? Is that...
2: We do do that. Yeah, we did it first as a study. And and, and uh, this is, again, some of the things, creative things you can do. We we basically screen uh, people who are at high risk of dying. And We uh, screened them, but then just provided them with usual care, and then we started to intervene after we collected some baseline data and showed that the ICU length of stay in these patients uh, uh, decreased quite substantially, getting us involved uh, earlier. Same number of people died. Uh, The total length of hospitalization actually ended up being about the same in both groups, but the stay in the ICU was shorter uh, and substantially by three or four days. And, and this is something hospital administrators are very interested in because uh, clearly it's the most expensive part of the hospital. And if people aren't going to benefit from it, then it'd be nice to have them in a better, uh, in a part of the hospital that's better geared to meet their needs.
1: That's absolutely fascinating. So you're able to work with the critical care team. And again, it's helpful to all parties involved. You're you're optimizing the use of the critical care beds. You're probably providing higher quality... uh, family satisfaction because when it's sort of no longer appropriate to be in the setting of the, the challenging setting of the ICU, you're switching to a different kind of setting.
2: Yeah, we, we screen uh, people and then people who, who are picked up on our screen, we then talk to the critical care attending. If, if they are really have a good relationship with the family. Things are moving forward. We just remain in the background. But if it's a more complex situation, they need some added help, or they're just getting bombed with other problems. We then can help them, you know, establish a relationship with the family from the get-go. And we do a lot of time-limited trials, so that so that uh, if somebody's at risk, we can set some some notions. In three days, we're going to know a lot more, and here's what we're likely to find. So we get families sort of thinking in terms of short trials of things, and and if things aren't going well, it's not a surprise to them as much because they kind of knew that might be coming.
1: And uh, I guess since we're sort of talking about uh, end-of-life issues and prolonging the dying process, I'd like to use this to segue into uh, the major focus of our interview today, which is the Terry Schiavo case. Um, Why don't we have you start out by, uh, and I know that most people have heard this, but if you could sort of summarize, and again using your uh, expertise, uh, presenting the background of the Terry Schiavo case, that would be great.
2: Well, Terry Schiavo in the early 1990s uh, had a, a serious brain uh, injury and, and was uh, basically in a persistent vegetative state. Uh, her husband, uh, Michael Shivo uh, really was a strong advocate for very aggressive care in the early going. They, in, uh, in fact, uh, put a deep brain, brain stimulator in, did some experimental therapy in hopes that they could uh, bring her uh, back. And it, really only after about three years of trying all of the potential experimental and aggressive treatments did he uh, accept the fact that this really was what the problem was. And then and then I think he asked the right question, what would she want under these circumstances? And he felt very strongly uh, she would not want to be kept alive in these circumstances based on conversations that he had had with her in the fa- in the past. Unfortunately, she did not have an advanced directive. This is where uh, he and his, uh, and Terry Shivo's parents started to part company Uh, in the sense that they weren't really as accepting of the diagnosis of PVS, and uh, also they weren't so sure that she wouldn't want to be kept going under these circumstances. Uh, And uh, this was the beginning of a very major sort of family battle over what was the right thing to do. It
1: got very complex, many levels of uh, conflict from what you know, my reading of this.
2: Huge, hugely complex. And a lot of uh, special interest groups got very involved. Politics got involved. And and so it it became no longer an intimate discussion with a family and perhaps some health care providers, but rather a very public discussion of, and and a lot of uh, people who had their own agendas got very involved in the case.
1: Um, to bring it to the area that really, from what I understand, became the crux, it was the issue of the feeding tube. And before we uh, discuss that further, I remember as that was coming out, discussing with my colleagues, that it seemed fundamentally different from when I have a patient in overwhelming septic shock on four pressors, and what we're doing is we're saying this isn't going to go well, and whether it happens in the next few hours or now we'd like to stop the pressers right now because it is clearly someone where the outcome will be the same. And then uh, I understand from my reading and discussion with other experts like you is that from an ethical standpoint, this issue of not giving feeding isn't really all that different from what I'm describing. And I was wondering if you could sort of discuss that.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, you know, uh, there's a couple of ethical distinctions that are important here. One is that we, and, 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 and we should put some question marks in them, I think. One is, that it is, uh, we're told, is ethically the same to stop a life-sustaining therapy a, as it is to not start it. Well, I think what if you if you say that more correctly, I think you're saying both those things are ethically permissible, but they're fundamentally different uh, experiences. Anybody who's taken somebody off a respirator knows it's different than not putting them on in the first place. And similarly, if you've had a, a trial of a feeding tube. Uh, and someone is clearly dependent on it. Stopping that feeding tube is a big uh, decision from a moral, psychological meaning point of view. Even though it is ethically permissible, so I think the the, the trick is that they're all they're. It's ethically permissible to stop, but particularly the meaning of feeding uh, and and what happens if you stop feeding, I think, is very loaded in our, in our culture and. And even though my personal point of view is artificial feeding is not the same as feeding. It doesn't have the taste, smell, touch of real food. So that's a very different kind of thing, and and it is a medical treatment that can be stopped. Um, But it's not an easy thing to do.
1: And I guess if we could revisit then those last few weeks, and I I remember from your well-written article on that, if you could discuss sort of the last series of events and then discuss them, if you could, from your ethical uh, standpoint, the issue of the the feeding tube and and what happened.
2: Well, first of all, I think from a a diagnostic point of view, there was not a lot of uh, dissension about the diagnosis that Terry Schiavo, of, of Terry Schiavo, amongst people who are credible, who examined her. Uh, She was in a persistent vegetative state. People in a persistent vegetative state are unnerving in the sense that they have Awakeness; they're just not alert or connected to the environment. All their all their brainstem function is okay. They have sleep wake cycles, but they're very unnerving to be in the so room. So, for people with.
1: who care for those patients all the time, clinicians, neurologists, uh, ethics people like yourself, uh, you can at least understand it. But for family members and people who may not be accustomed to seeing it, it can be very jarring.
2: Very jarring and unnerving because they look. It appears that they're looking at you. They they open their eyes. They blink. They might even grimace or smile. Uh, And so, if you're, you have to really have some training, and then spend some serious time with that patient to make sure they're not in other kinds of conditions. Uh, But I think there was not a lot of disagreement amongst people who really had examined Terry Schiavo that about the medical facts. So then, if you're clear about the medical facts that it's PVS and she's not going to get better, although there
1: was some argument at the time, and, and just to make it clear for the podcast as an intensivist married to a neurologist, the the key issue was was she interacting with her environment? And from my understanding, the answer was no. That's to, correct. To the people that officially evaluated it. yeah, is that that's correct? correct.
2: Yep. So so again, and and you really do have to be a trained person and a lot with a lot of experience to make this determination because people in PVS. They open their eyes. They appear to be scanning, uh, but it's just not connected to things that are going on. So in certainly the, nothing
1: that you should be able to make a determination from from a 30 second video it no, on CNN no. or something. And like in
2: that. fact, it's that whole part of this was a very, I think, disturbing uh, part of manipulating the the public and and taking very tiny snippets that looked like she was smiling, connected. Uh, and saying, gee, how could this, how could this possibly be PVS? And, in fact, that's, that is par for the course for PVS, anybody who's, who's actually been with it. If you collect out moments, so you really have to spend time with this patient, examine her carefully. And, and people did do that, numerous people uh, with expertise did do that. So then the question, if, if the diagnosis is settled, then the next question is uh, su- a question of substituted judgment. What would she want um, done under this circumstance? And the courts really collected a lot of data from Michael Schiavo, from her parents, from friends about this. Florida has a very high legal standard for withdrawing feeding tube, a clear and convincing standard. So you have to meet a very high legal standard to withdraw a feeding tube. And the courts really felt that with the data that they heard that it met the clear and convincing standard. And that's why I think this was that's the only reason they did stop the feeding tube if there was not that kind of evidence that she wouldn't have wanted it then i think it would have continued
1: so it had proceeded through the courts they had determined that it was it was uh, there was clear and convincing evidence that it was not unreasonable to remove the feeding tube and, and then what happened
2: well there were a variety of appeals the uh, the there was intervention at the level of the governor of florida there was uh, and and then when that so that sent it back to court Uh, again at an appeals court, which again then supported what the lower court had done. Then the federal government got involved. Bill Frist, uh, uh, a a physician in Congress, uh, said that he thought uh, it wasn't uh, PVS based on who knows what, probably one of these, again, 30-second sound bites that were on the television. President Bush intervened, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court, which then chose not to hear... Uh, the case, uh, basically saying that the courts really did do their job. And I think that one of the bottom lines of this uh, uh, whole legal part of this case is the courts actually were were solid as a rock in this in this particular instance. They, they did what they're supposed to do, which is when we can't, we meaning the physician, patients, families, with the help of palliative care and ethics, when we can't resolve these things, the courts have to then take over and say, is this clear enough? that we can make a decision of this magnitude. And the courts really looked carefully at the data and helped make that decision and then stuck to it. All the appeals processes worked in the way that they ought to work.
1: I was wondering if you could talk for a couple of minutes about the, there are some important precedent-setting cases prior to this case, and if you could talk about those and perhaps answer questions for for people like me, saying if those cases were so important and so well uh, entrenched in the legal system, why was there so much ap- apparent chaos in this situation?
2: Well, actually, w- what's what's striking uh, to me is how infrequently we've had big cases in recent years. So I, I think these, the precedents really are working. The first precedent probably of note is Quinlan, 1976. Uh, again, these are all relatively young women, all in PBS. Uh, Quinlan uh, was also on a ventilator, as well as a feeding tube. This uh, went to the New Jersey Supreme Court, and the New Jersey Supreme Court uh, said that the feeding tube was—excuse uh, me—the ventilator was a medical treatment; it could be stopped. Um, and they—they they actually came up with the best, I think, uh, formulation of substituted judgment uh, that has ever been uh, ever been stated, which was if Karen Ann Quinlan could wake up for fifteen minutes. Understand her situation completely. Be in the room with you, and then had to go back to it. What would she tell you to do? That's 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 the challenge. And and I repeatedly bring this up with families. You know, if so and so could tell us what to do, and then had to go back there, what would he do? And sometimes that's really a it it shifts the thinking. Oh, Dad would never want to be kept alive like
1: this. It's not what. And again, just to reemphasize your very very important point that when you're speaking with families, it isn't what they want. Right. It's what they. As representatives of their family member would
2: want, it's it's actually what they think the patient would want. So, and and it's really important because it does take the weight to some degree of the decision off of them. And in fact, I will say to families sometimes, I don't, to be perfectly blunt, I don't care what you want. Uh, You know what? What I really want you to try to imagine is what your loved one would want, and what would he say or she say if she was in the room. So anyway, that that formulated that then. The Quinlan case, then they took her off the ventilator. Of course, she breathed on her own. She lived for another eight years, uh, kept alive by a feeding tube. Anybody who's ever seen some of these big court ordeals know that going through now, the same ordeal again around the feeding tube was more than this family could go through. So that was sort of the precedent uh, up uh, as of 1976. And then 1991, uh, uh, Nancy Cruzan case, she was kept alive on a, on a f- uh, feeding tube. It's a case in Missouri, Missouri had a clear and convincing standard uh, for evidence about a patient's wishes in order to stop things like feeding tubes. Uh, and this case went all the way to the Supreme, U.S. Supreme Court. Again, this is after waiting several years where family had hoped that she would get better, accepted that she wasn't going to get better. Then they asked the question, what would she want? Felt strongly she wouldn't want it. Many years in the courts sorting this out. Uh, the Supreme Court said that feeding tube was like any other medical treatment. It can be stopped, but states can set standards of evidence uh, that are required. And Missouri, New York, is another state that has a very high standard, as does, as does uh, Florida. Uh, so this clear and convincing standard was not unconstitutional. And then they sent it back to Missouri. They did collect some additional information about what she probably had said, and then they felt it did meet the clear and convincing standard her feeding tube was discontinued, and then she was allowed to die. And then the third case was, I think, Shivo. Um, but if you think about it, three cases in, you know, 30 years, that's not a lot. And, and so most of the time, I think we have a good working framework. Clearly, if somebody has the ability to speak for him or herself, we can talk with them. They can stop any treatment, including a feeding tube. Uh, So the real challenge is when people lose the ability to speak for themselves, and how do we then continue decision-making? So
1: substituted judgment and assessment of substituted judgment, I guess, becomes one of the conflicted areas. Uh, I'd like to conclude the interview um, by discussing the title of your talk, where you say anomaly or harbinger. Um, I guess you have some concerns, obviously, from the Terry Schiavo case, that it might have implications for the future, and if you could talk about that a little bit, that would be great as we conclude today.
2: Well, I think we have... You know, life-sustaining technologies are growing dramatically, and probably the most vivid example at our institution are uh, the, ventri- uh, the artificial hearts, the ventricular assist devices, where now when your heart stops, you, have a, you don't die necessarily, you have a choice, or your family has a choice about whether to put in an artificial heart. And uh, so we're starting to see our ICUs now, Filling up with people who were very sick going into this, who are now kept alive on VADS. Uh, so I think we have we we're having a whole new generation of choices that we are having people have to make. Often it's not the patient making for themselves. Often these are people who are desperately ill, and many people are not going to be able to set any limits at all. Families are not going to be set any lim- able to set any limits at all. So if we offer them these these treatments, I think. They will ask for them.
1: And it's in the role of the clinicians will be critical to help interpret the outcomes or potential outcomes for these fa- patients and families, correct?
2: Yes, I think we I think we have to take a much more active role uh, in recommending. You know, uh, there are circumstances clearly where VADs can be wonderfully life prolonging. You know, bridges to transplant clearly. Not. I don't think there's a lot of controversy there. But as destination devices with people who are quite sick going into it, I think there's a lot of questions about about that kind of practice. Similarly, the the just the number, the sheer number of choices that patients and families are faced with, you know, ranging from antibiotics to feeding tubes to you know some of the more vividly invasive treatments, I think I think it's just very challenging uh, uh, to decide how much to guide them, how much to really try to steer them toward a more comfort-oriented oriented approach as a patient gets sicker and sicker.
1: And uh, I guess just to conclude, I-, I remember when your article came out that it really is the job of the healthcare community to help clear up a lot of when there were a lot of these diagnostic questions with her. I mean that that seemed to me one of the most important things that we as healthcare providers at the local level could do is to help educate the people around us when there was questions about whether or not she was uh, alive and what is a persistent vegetative state and things like that.
2: Yeah, clearly one of, one of our biggest challenges when we do palliative care consults in the ICU is to get because there are so many people involved, each managing, you know, an organ system and and uh, trying to get a consensus amongst this whole large sometimes unwieldy team about wh- wh- what is the real prognosis here and uh are we what is what is the key thing that we're looking at if it's a neurological impairment trying to get really as clear as we can and then once we get clear i think then we're in a position that we can work better with with families but it really does require i think a a main spokesman for the group uh, somebody who establishes a relationship with a family meets with them repeatedly over time because these are these are just tough uh tough decisions that can be made but they're a lot better made if if somebody has a relationship. They're known to the family. They develop uh, uh, some trust with them.
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Timothy Quill. Dr. Quill is a professor of medicine, psychiatry, and medical humanities, as well as the director of the Center for Palliative Care and Clinical Ethics at the University of Rochester Medical Center in Rochester, New York. Thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. This concludes our podcast for Sunday, January 8, 2006. To learn more about improving end-of-life care in your intensive care unit, attend the SCCM Conference Improving the Quality of End-of-Life Care in the ICU Interventions that Work, February seventeenth and eighteenth, two 2006 in Miami, Florida. For more information or to register, visit the SCCM website at www.sccm.org. Thanks again for listening.
0: Stay up to date on advancements in the critical care profession by attending the Society of Critical Care Medicine's new educational series, Critical Care Academy, giving you tools to increase your critical care skills and knowledge. Critical Care Academy features the adult and pediatric multi-professional critical care review courses on July 18th through the 22nd, 2006. Prior to the review courses, take part in the new clinical strategies and skills simulation in pediatric critical care or the Expanded American Board of Internal Medicine Critical Care Self-Evaluation Process Module Review on July 16th through 17th to enhance your board review process. Tailor your learning experience to suit your specific needs at one convenient location, saving you time and money. Register today to guarantee your course selections by speaking with a SCCM customer service representative at 1-847-827-6888 or visit www.sccm.org.